Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Abundant Edge podcast. Unlike on our normal forum where I will interview industry leaders and innovators in natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living, today we're going to focus on a specific topic that I normally teach in my Intro to Natural Building courses. And today we're going to cover one of the lectures during that course all about siting and design. This is one of the key presentations that I give on the first day of the course so that people get an overview of what we're trying to accomplish, especially in natural building. Although many of these siting and design techniques can apply to any type of building, the goal for us as natural builders is to integrate our structures into the landscape so that it functions with the ecosystem rather than trying to dominate it or just consume its resources. So for those of you who are listening and following along at home, there's a PDF attached to the show notes for this episode on the podcast page at AbundantEdge.com. And you can follow along with the lecture, looking at the slides so that this makes a lot more sense as you're following along at home. So let's start together at the first slide of Intro to Design and Siting. We're going to focus first on the criteria and the information that you want to gather in order to make the best decisions for your site and your building. The more information you can gather, the better your designs and your project placement will be. So let's start with some of the essential info that you want to find out. 
You want to start, of course, with your local climate. And I don't mean just the average temperatures and the weather events that happen over a year span. You also want to take information on the most extreme weather events. Look into earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, whatever the most severe weather event that happens on your site might be over a 10, 100 year span. You want to take into account the worst possible weather events, especially because they're becoming more and more frequent with climate change every single year. One of the most common natural disasters to really affect people's buildings are floods. Floods cause more damage every year all around the world than all other natural disasters put together. Water rising and getting into your structures can do more damage than most shearing winds or even earthquakes. So if you have an undeveloped site and are trying to look at the most important factors to sort of plan around, look for any sites that might possibly pool water or where water can collect and stand for any period of time. From there, you want to look at your orientation. Now, this is your general north, south, east, west coordinates. This is going to determine how light travels over your site during different seasons. Now, obviously, the higher you are in latitude or lower you are in latitude for southern hemisphere, the more that this is going to affect the difference between the winter and the summer solstices and the arc that the sun has to travel over that site will affect the way that it warms or cools your house or other building that you have on site. There are many different resources online that you can find to calculate these things. If anybody is doing their designs on SketchUp, there is a really great uh, shadow calculator. And as you put your renderings up, it'll show you the different paths during different times of the year and even different times of the day that the sun will be hitting your site and you can plan accordingly. Now, this is especially useful if you want to make use of passive solar design techniques and use the sun's radiation throughout the day to help to evenly heat your house, both during the night and during the day. The third bit of information on this list is elevation, and there is a difference between absolute and relative elevation. Absolute elevation is the distance from sea level that you are um, and, you know, famously places like Denver, the Mile High City are about 5,280 feet above sea level. But relative elevation is just as important to take into account. So where I live in Guatemala, we're up in the mountains and we live in a valley with a fairly regular sort of disc level on our site. Now, in relation to our general area, we are, again, almost about a mile high from sea level. But living in a mountain valley, our relative elevation puts us quite a bit higher above the lake where water travels down during heavy rains or flooding events. Now, no matter how high from sea level you are, you could still be in a land depression or something, or something of a bowl or a valley where water can collect. So your relative elevation is how high you are to the terrain around you. And this is really essential to take into account, mostly for these flooding events, like I mentioned. Another essential bit of information to, to look into is environmental and community interactions. These are really often overlooked when people are designing their houses. Talking about things like traffic and noise, privacy, shade, views, regulations, and codes especially. We'll talk a little bit more about regulations and codes later, but these are kind of 
the determining factors of what you can build and what criteria you have to meet just in order to meet the standards of the municipality in which you live. Now, this varies widely in different countries and different municipalities within countries. So I won't go into much detail about how to um, sort of factor these things in because of how much it can vary. But know that you should always do your homework first and check in with your local municipality about what their standards are to make sure that they don't come along later and tell you you have to tear your structure down. Now, I would love to hear from people out there about what else you would consider essential information. One of my students over this last week mentioned the future development of the area around you. If you're in an area that's developing rapidly or where a lot of land near you is being bought up, it's worth kind of making connections with the people who have bought up or are planning to develop around you and see what it is they're planning to put on that site. If they're going to build a high-rise building right in front of your view, that might really affect how you're planning your own building, knowing that that's going to be put there in the future. If some sort of commercial or event center is being planned near you as well, that could completely throw off your calculations for things like traffic, noise, and privacy, which we mentioned earlier. Knowing how things are going to develop around you, or at least make estimates, can really help you to make an informed decision on how you yourself want to develop. Now, moving on to the next slide, what I always say is that a good natural builder knows how to cheat. And that doesn't mean like cut corners. It means most of the information available to you for how people have been building for a long time is already available. 95% of the time or more, you will be building in a place that has a long history of traditional or indigenous building techniques. Even a quick Wikipedia search can tell you about some of the indigenous dwellings and building techniques from far back. And pretty much 100% of the time, if you, especially if you start going back before World War II, there's very little industrial processes in the building techniques of indigenous people. They tend to use things that are very close by, easy to use and process, oftentimes with very primitive tools and quickly put up structures that are appropriate to the climate and the context in which they're living. Now, obviously, you need to take into account the differences in lifestyle between back then and now, and you're probably going to want to accommodate a lot of new materials and a different type of uh, lifestyle and commodities within the building, but it can give you a really good baseline that you can use to sort of jump forward in your plans and how you accommodate the resources around you into what you're trying to accomplish. How many generations can you go back and investigate to find out what worked and why? Obviously, the further back you go, the more primitive the dwellings will be. And in many places around the world, the types of structures that were built in your area were temporary in order to accommodate nomadic people who followed different herds of animals through their migration patterns. And in many areas, uh, permanent structures were not the norm. As you move forward, you can sort of see how building styles have accommodated new ways of life. You can look to those and sort of tweak and adjust them to accommodate what you're trying to achieve in your own lifestyle. This information will give you incredible insight into things that are likely to work where you are using very simple materials and tools. Does anyone who's listening here know about the vernacular building history in their region? 
What can you tell about where it is that you live and how people have adapted their building styles over time? How many of those techniques and materials can you use yourself? Now let's talk about traditional buildings of Central America, just to give an example of what I'm talking about. Now this is a Wikipedia excerpt, but it's a good way to sort of distill some of the information from traditional Mayan buildings, because I'm here in rural Guatemala and this was the context in which I'm working with. I'll read it off verbatim. In the case of common houses, wooden framing, adobe, and thatch were used to build homes over stone foundations. However, instances of what appear to be common houses of limestone have been discovered as well. Buildings were typically finished with high slanted roofs, usually built of wood or thatch, although stone roofs in these high slant fashions are also used, but rarely. Now what they're referring to is in sort of the traditional Mayan architectural context, what most people think of are the palaces and the temples from the old Mayan ruins that you can still visit today most of which were built from limestone. And the reason why they were built with, with limestone, not only because it was rather plentiful in these areas, but because at the times that they were built, they weren't using metal tools. They were mostly using stone and wooden tools. And limestone being a much softer stone than many of the others that were available in the region, you could use other types of harder stones to chisel or quarry out limestone and shape it to form to build these larger structures. So a lot of times the tools that they were working with in these times give the context as to why they built with the materials that they did. Now, limestone quarrying is a job for a lot of people. And so the common houses is what we were focusing on there. And in most places around the world where they were building fairly permanent structures, earth was the go-to building technique and material for almost all places aside from areas that were very heavily wooded. In this slide, we show some of the traditional techniques from different areas around the world. Quarrying stone with wooden and uh, stone, or sorry, metal or stone chisels in the top uh, left-hand corner. In the top right, an example of Nubian vaults being built with adobe bricks in, in Africa. In the bottom left, a wattle and daub technique with what looks to be bamboo used as the wattle or the interior framing and then being pressed and filled in with a mixture very similar to cob or adobe with a bit of fiber and mostly clay soil. And then in the bottom right, the slanted adobe brick assembling technique that is still used to this day to build what are often referred to as Nubian vaults. Now let's talk about siting. All of the information that you've gathered up until this point will help you to make the best decision of where to put your building. First, I would urge people who are looking to do some sort of land-based projects, such as farming, to put your house on the worst place on your site to do these things. Chances are, unless you have a lot of land, there are only a few sort of optimal places for not only sunlight, but soil composition, uh, irrigation potential, and just general fertility on your site that would be ideal for these things. And if you go and put your house or your structure right in the middle of these areas, you're going to severely limit the capacity of what you can produce on your site. In many places around the world, 
Traditionally, people have built their houses in some of the most inhospitable areas of the land in order to make the best use of the arable land that they have for agriculture and uh, putting animals out to pasture. Another thing that I will repeat throughout this lecture is to think about the function of your building and make sure that the placement of your building is to the advantage of its function. And of course, the function being what you plan on using the space for. Now, there are certain needs, especially in houses, um, between sleeping, cooking, sanitation, and just general shelter that cannot be ignored. Those are necessities of your building. But you may have other functions as well. If you work from home, you may want an office space. If you're a musician or an artist of some type, you may want a workshop or a music room. These are all the functions, the activities that will be going on within the structure that always should be considered whenever you're designing. Make sure, first of all, to build away from gullies and drainage areas. As I mentioned before, water damage is one of the most costly and damaging uh, natural disasters that can affect a structure. So make sure to be away from the path of water during especially severe weather events. Look especially for places where you can anchor easily into something hard and solid on your landscape, especially if there's a severe weather and earthquakes uh, are a significant risk in your area. This is also especially important if you're building on a very severe slope. Gravity is not on your side on these severe angles, and tying into something or anchoring into something solid in the landscape is the best way to make sure that the foundations will not have problems or might move away in any of these severe events that I talked about. Know what you have available on your site and what advantages and challenges you're working for or working with. At this point, you want to sort of do an inventory of what you have on your site. So let's start by getting the idea that there is a perfect site out there just out of your mind. It doesn't exist. I've, I've looked, I've talked to a lot of people. Every single site has some sort of challenge, either too little water or too much water too much of a slant or possibly too flat. It really is just a matter of what you're trying to accomplish and if you're able to do that on your site. If you're not able at all, you have to look for somewhere else. But every place you go, you're going to have to accommodate some sort of factors, some sort of criteria that maybe are not ideal for what you're trying to accomplish and you have to work around them or find a way of transforming those problems into solutions. Every resource on your site can become a disadvantage if managed poorly. So for example, if you need water on site to irrigate plants, or even just to turn into potable water for sanitation and drinking, that's great if you've got a spring on site. But if you're in a drainage gully, or if you're in an area that suddenly gets inundated in very, very heavy rains, too much water, especially if it's planned through drainage routes and canals on site, in an area that could really affect negatively what you've been trying to do with it, either planting a garden, setting your foundations for your home or whatever, can quickly become a really big issue. And this is all about managing those resources. You may want to live in a forest where there's a lot of trees and a lot of lumber as a building resource. But if it shades out your place in an already cold area and you just never get direct sunlight, that could also be a disadvantage. 
selective pruning and chopping down of a couple of trees to make sure that you get the sunlight and possibly the solar gain to uh, help to heat your space can be an advantage, but you're going to need to manage it correctly. The other thing I would say is don't go into a project with an agenda. You're much more able to adapt to your place if you don't come in with preconceived notions. The story that I like to give on this is I had an apprentice about a year and a half ago who went to a conference here on Lake Atitlan and was listening to a talk by a Super Adobe builder. Now, Super Adobe has tons of advantages, and this guy was talking all about them, about how it can basically solve all your problems and is the best way to build. And by the end of the talk, he left by saying, but unfortunately, on my site, we just have really rocky soil, and I'm not sure how we're going to get the clay soil we need to make Super Adobe. Now, if any of you are kind of going up with red flags at this statement, you're not alone. If you have a whole bunch of rocks on your site, Perhaps building with clay soil is not the best idea. If you have a great resource such as stones, you should think about using those in your building as much as possible. If you go into a site with preconceived notions, what I often say is the man with a hammer sees a world full of nails. You go in there seeing solutions without fully understanding the problem. So try and maintain an open mind and try and work with the resources and the conditions that you have on your site to best solve your problems. Think about now, what are some of the sectors that would need to be designed around in your site? And if you don't have one in mind already, just think sort of theoretically, where would you like to live? What are perhaps some of the factors that you would need to accommodate in your design so that they don't become disadvantages or challenges? Now, who among you listening already has a project in mind? Do any of you know what you want to build in the future? Let's go over some of the common uh, design techniques that have become really popular, especially in the natural building world. And I'll go over four sort of uh, very quickly, just to hopefully inspire some new design ideas in those of you who are listening, and maybe you can consider implementing some or all of the the design techniques in these into a building you're considering uh, implementing yourself. So the four that I'll go over are earthships, geodesic domes, passive solar design techniques, and wofatis slash earth integrated houses. Some of you may already know these by name, and these might be new to a few of you listeners out there as well. So let's talk first about passive solar design techniques. The illustrations in the presentation here are going to be really useful. So if you haven't already downloaded the PDF file of this presentation, I really recommend that you take a look at it because this will make a lot more sense with the illustrations. Now, passive solar design techniques are not at all unique to natural buildings. In fact, they're becoming more and more common all the time in industrial buildings as well because it just makes sense to take advantage of the free solar energy that we all get, well, pretty much all of us get, (laughs) in order to cut down on the imported energy to create a comfortable home environment in most places around the world. Now, a lot of the other design techniques that I'll be going over after this include passive solar design in part or as a keystone of their design techniques. So let's go over how you can take advantage of solar energy through different seasons. Now, the 
sun follows a different trajectory, the further you are up in latitude or down in latitude away from the equator, you'll have a more severe difference between winter sun and summer sun. Summer sun tends to stay in the air quite a bit longer following a higher arc overhead and shining directly down in the height of the season. Now in winter, the days are shorter and the sun is likely not to rise quite as high in the sky, bringing in more of a slanted or indirect uh, solar pattern um, coming across from the sky. Now you can leverage this to your advantage, seeing as most people want to have more sunlight, especially during the winter months, in order to warm themselves and their spaces. Whereas in the summertime, you want to keep that out of your space so that your home or other building doesn't overheat. And you can leverage this with the overhangs on your roof or by selectively letting in sunlight coming from different angles. So with the overhang on the roof, you can make sure that the high sun in the summertime is shaded away from windows and doors and other transparent openings in your house during the high summer months so that the interior stays shaded and much cooler. And as the sun has more of a slanted and less direct trajectory in the wintertime, those overhangs on your roof or the selective shading on your house allow that to come in from a more severe angle and get indoors where it can potentially warm up some sort of thermal mass that gets charged with sunlight during the day and releases it slowly during the night in order to help to regulate the interior temperature of the space without having to bring in imported energy or burning fossil fuels. The illustrations on this presentation will show different ways how you can utilize that in various floor plans. The most simple one being in the top left, a more complex and intricate design utilizing passive solar techniques in the right hand side and a picture of a beautiful, simple building in a snowy climate oriented towards the sun, but with overhangs on the roofs that selectively allow in different sunlight based on the trajectory and the change of the seasons. I hope this makes sense. Definitely check out the presentation for the illustrations if it doesn't. Now let's talk about earthships. This is a very common uh I would say pedagogy within the natural building world and became most popular, especially uh, in the area around Taos, New Mexico, where this design was originally sort of founded. Earthships have since really caught on in popularity, partly because of the beautiful integration of sort of greenhouse space oriented along the passive solar gain. Um, well, in northern New Mexico, where this technique was sort of founded, they're orienting it southward, where you get the most solar gain. And earthships are usually characterized by the style of having a long house with uh, maximum solar orientation, where they can take in the sunlight and use it to heat the space, to grow crops, and work in a whole other type of, we would call, appropriate technology so that living space is as self-sufficient as possible. They also use a bunch of other techniques, which uh, I'm a little hesitant to advocate for. Um, ramming tires for thermal mass in the back walls of a house and earth berming it at the back 
definitely has some advantages by taking uh, or making the best use of the constant heat of the earth or the thermal temperature to help to regulate the inside of the building by tapping into the ground. Ramming those tires, I understand, is meant to be sort of a recycling technique and upcycling old tires which no longer have a useful life on the road and ramming them with earth in order to turn them into a thermal mass bank at the back of the house that can store heat or cold based on how you're trying to regulate the temperature of the interior space. <laughs> now from experience, I know that this can be a ton of work and tires can be quite unsightly and difficult to work with seeing as a lot of them have exposed wires from being torn up on the road and I don't know, me personally, I've worked with a lot of other materials that could accomplish the same thing. And I just think that it's a whole lot of extra work for sort of the purpose that it serves in the building. However, I'm really in favor of the way that they have integrated many different types of appropriate technology, such as rainwater harvesting, solar panels or windmills for electricity generation gray water, recycling techniques, growing food inside of your house. I think all of these are brilliant. Now, they were all sort of founded independently of Earthships, so you can integrate any of these types of technologies into whatever house that you have, but they've done a very good job about integrating all of these into a single system and making very self-sufficient home units. I would encourage you to perhaps use more Earth or natural building techniques in this as originally they used a whole lot of cement but you know nothing's perfect and I encourage everyone to do the best with the resources that they have on hand however the one thing that I am a little bit wary of with earthships is that when people get really excited about a particular pedagogy they tend to think that it's the solution for everything and I have heard of and seen earthships built all over the world now, this very particular design methodology worked very well in northern New Mexico around the Taos area where I worked significantly during part of my natural building apprenticeship. So I understand the climate fairly well. The major swings in temperature are well accommodated with the design style of earthships in that area. But when you start to move it, if you take it to another area of the world or a significantly different climate, you have to significantly amend the design to accommodate the climate that you're in. And that's not something that I've seen done very effectively in a lot of the earthships that I've seen built in other areas, including here in Guatemala where I now live. So if you are thinking about building an earthship in an area away from northern New Mexico, look carefully into how you would sort of accommodate the differences in climate into the design of that building. Again, there are many brilliant things about the earthship design, just make sure that you amend it properly for wherever you're thinking of building it. Let's talk now about earth integrated buildings or Wolfatis. If you know this term Wolfati, chances are you've hung out on the Permis platforms with um, Paul Wheaton or perhaps on the rich soil platforms online. There are great resources there. I've gone there for many answers to questions and tons of excellent educational resources as well. I would point just about anybody in that direction if they're looking to know more about permaculture, homesteading, natural building, and things like that. Now, originally, this design came from a book 
called the $50 and Under House, or I may have that slightly wrong, but it was written in the 1970s by a man named Mike Ayler. And he pioneered this idea of building homes into uh, a hillside or into a piece of earth, which admittedly has been done for millennia. He had nothing new there. But the way that he changed the orientation of the building is very well illustrated in the cutaways and the illustrations on this presentation. Look at the bottom and how water runs away from the building in this context. Now, if you had the, the building following in the same direction and opening at the bottom of a hillside, you're prone to a lot of water buildup, especially in the back of a building that can start to seep through and cause all sorts of humidity and mold problems within the building. Now, by flipping it the other way around and digging a significant portion out of the hillside so that it opens up towards the upper part of the hill and does not connect in directly with the hillside, you solve so many of those water problems and it no longer butts up against the structure where it could cause damage to the building itself. I've seen very, very simple designs of this and I've seen very ornate and complex ones. The main thing to know that if it's designed correctly and oriented uh, correctly with solar orientation, there's no reason for this to feel like a cavern or a cave built inside of a hillside. The only real difference is that it's covered with earth and sort of accommodated into a hillside for the advantages of the thermal mass and the constant temperature within the earth which helps to lower heating bills significantly. And though I don't have personal experience building these types of structures, I have started now to experiment with hobbit houses. And I'm just in the beginning of this. So if anybody has more experience with building earth-integrated houses or wafatis or whatever you want to call them, I would love to hear from you and possibly even do a podcast interview because I'm fascinated by the potential of this uh, design technique. Lastly, let's go on to geodesic domes. Now, this is another design criteria or design style that I do not have personal experience with, but I know that it's rather common and sought after, especially in the natural building world, and has seen sort of a resurgence as people have seen how easy and how structurally sound these can be, especially these days in the context of greenhouses and building the structure with bamboo. Now, I believe that this was a, uh, a building style that first got popular with a man named Buckminster Fuller, who wrote some revolutionary architectural and design books uh, that were way ahead of his time. He had some brilliant ideas. I haven't gotten through his books entirely myself, but I have referenced a few of his teachings and some of his videos online for inspiration. One of the biggest advantages of these geodesic domes is that they are built with a combination of triangles, with, which geometrically are some of the strongest shapes uh, in nature because there's no way for them to collapse. As long as the unions or the joints holding the three sides together do not fail, there is no way for that structure to collapse the same way that perhaps a rectangle or a square could. And by orienting it into a half sphere or a dome, you're also taking advantage of another very sturdy structure and a minimal amount of surface area to volume ratio. 
These stand up extremely well in high winds and storms because there is just nothing for wind to grab onto. It flows over the structure very seamlessly without kind of catching onto any part of the building. And they tend to perform extremely well in heavy weather events. Now, I'm not sure all of the reasons why the popularity of these structures sort of fizzled out, but from the research I've done, I've heard that they can be difficult to heat. And please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. If you're a geodesic dome builder um, who swears by the design style of these, I would love to hear from you. I'm not super um, well-versed in this technique or the advantages of this design. So this is meant mostly to sort of give you some more ideas of how you could sort of broaden the scope of what you're open to building and um, sort of be inspired by new forms. Now let's move on from these different design styles and start talking about designing for comfort. Temperature, first of all, is one of the keys to people feeling comfortable in a structure. Different techniques such as thermal mass, insulation, and windbreaks in your structure can help to accomplish this without having to import energy from outside or burn fossil fuels or use combustion of any kind in order to make up the difference. Lighting is another key aspect to comfort inside of a structure. Natural lighting has a profound effect on the body that can help you to feel more alert it's been shown that natural lighting put into office spaces can increase the productivity of workers significantly. And there are many different types of lighting that have a different effect on us. Think about different types of electric lighting. Do you start to get a headache when you think of flickering fluorescent bulbs and the buzzing sound that they make? What about the warmth of the lighting just from a fireplace, even if you're not near it? Or have you ever watched a fireplace on the TV? I remember that there was a public access channel when I was growing up that would show a, <laughs> a show called Yule Log <laughs> during the holiday season. And you were literally just watching a fireplace on the television. That still felt warm looking at it, even if there wasn't any warmth coming out of the set itself. Now, during different type, times of day, your structure is going to be exposed to different forms of natural lighting. The early morning sunrise has a different effect on our body than the sunset. And all of these can be accommodated within the design of a structure to sort of cultivate a comfort and a mood that can really enhance a space. It's worth thinking about. Air quality is another important one especially in modern contexts of industrial structures, toxins, humidity, and smell control can have a, a profound impact on our comfort inside of a space. Many paints, uh, furniture, carpets, and other in common installations in modern homes off-gas significantly during their lifetime. Things called VOCs or volatile organi organic compounds can significantly pollute the interior space of your home. I've seen quite a few studies that claim that even in cities, or sorry, yeah, even in cities where you consider there to be a lot of pollution in the outdoor environment, most indoor environments, including office spaces and homes, actually have worse air quality because of all of these VOCs off-gassing 
from common installations like carpets, paints, and furniture. So by using natural materials inside your home, you're already significantly improving the air quality. To say nothing if you were to put something like clay walls or clay plasters and paints, which help to regulate the humidity inside an interior space and avoid things like mold and mildew buildup. Clay can also help to filter the air, uh, take out smells and toxins from other uh, installations in the home, and help to sort of cultivate a feeling of freshness and general cleanliness, which leads me to cleanliness in general. Good sanitation facilities inside of a building are very important. If you struggle to keep that place clean, you're probably never really going to be comfortable in it. Things like dust, mold, odors, stains, etc. can actually be easier to sort of service or maintain based on the design of the building. Security and privacy are another very important uh, set of factors. The visibility in and out of your structure can affect how safe you feel inside of it. Being able to lock things, being able to have private spaces that are either private only to you within the house or shared just within the occupants of the space. People and belongings as well. If you leave and you're concerned about the safety of your precious items, of the people that you have inside of your home, perhaps your pets, you're never going to have full peace of mind within a structure. And when we talk about the difference between a house and a home, security is a big factor in what you would consider a real home. Convenience and accessibility, or energy flows as well, can have a big impact on how you feel when you're inside of a space. Does the space facilitate or hinder the functions that you built it for? Now, there are a lot of different thinkings in the design world, and I did not study architecture professionally, but I have worked with some very talented architects, many of whom have talked about this concept of designing for the functions rather than the spaces that you want to cultivate. If you go into designing a structure and think, well, I want a bedroom here, I want a kitchen, a bathroom, perhaps a living room, and design for those spaces, it's going to feel much less personal than if you design those spaces for the functions. You might find you don't need a separation between a kitchen and a living room, but if the functions of how you like to cook, say you're a real minimalist and for the most part you just kind of heat things up and don't go very fancy, or if you're a real foodie and love to cook all the time, uh, making a big effort for it, having dinner parties and things like that, your kitchen space should reflect how you use it. If you like to get the latest gadgets in order to do complex things like I do, um, having a space with a lot of storage, something that's easy to clean, counter heights and cabinets that are easily accessible for your height, which that might sound kind of weird, but if you've ever li if you're a tall person and you've ever lived in a country where the average person is very short, such as me here in Guatemala, you will quickly notice the difference that having things built to your height standards makes in the comfort of performing your tasks. Uh, now, I know this is not a great excuse, but the sinks around here are extremely low. 
And it really disincentivizes me from doing many dishes because when I do them for a while, I'm hunched over and it hurts my back and it's rather uncomfortable. Now, I still do them, but it is much better to have the types of chores that you would kind of avoid because they're unpleasant designed in such a way that they are not unpleasant, perhaps having a nice view out of a window while you're washing dishes or cooking. Um, counter levels so that you're not hunched over and you're not uncomfortable while you're performing the task. And many other examples like this can completely transform the way that your habits go about your daily tasks in life. So think about now, what are some of your essentials for comfort? What are some wants that aren't essential? Now, this is where you can dream really big. And this is where I get really excited on this part of the presentation, especially when I'm teaching a course, because the students come up with all sorts of things that oftentimes they've been dreaming about since they were kids. Now, I'll give you an example from me personally. I really love to read and I've always loved to collect books. So I've always dreamed of having an extension in my house with some sort of spire or steeple where you can climb up to the top maybe in a spiral staircase and it's a very small private room at the top with a nice view and a lot of light coming in but instead of regular walls all of the walls are covered in bookshelves wall to wall and instead of a regular floor the floor is all a mattress so anywhere you sit anywhere you lie down is really comfortable and again it's small uh, I like to feel kind of cozy and I don't get claustrophobic, so I really like the idea of this size. What are some of the things that you dreamed up of, uh, even just recently, that you would love to have in your house? And I'm not talking about needs. I'm not talking about essentials. Um, did you want to live in Hogwarts for all of the different like trap doors and secret windows and entrances to things? Did you always want to live near the ocean where there were barely any walls? It was all windows and mostly open throughout the time and mostly just like one little comfortable bed and a rack for your surfboard. What are the dream aspects that maybe are entirely unrealistic, but start thinking big now? You can always come back to practicality later. This is really the fun of design. Now for this presentation, we're going to start concluding now. I would love to hear from you if you found this presentation valuable, if you learned anything that you didn't know before. And if anybody wants to know more about some of the topics that I cover in these courses, we offer another intro to natural building in December and one in April with an intermediate natural building course that I'll be teaching with my friend and mentor, Charlie Rendell, in January as well, where we'll be going much deeper into these concepts of design and into the practicality of different types of wall systems, foundations, roof systems, techniques for building with clay. We'll be doing lots of different types of uh, wall systems such as rammed earth, light straw clay, cob, adobe, and things like that. So before I conclude this presentation, I would really invite you to come out and participate in this with us. We're having a blast out here. We're learning how to completely transform our living environments and take back control of the, not only how we build, but the way that we live. So in conclusion, you want to start by getting as much information as you can. Look to the past and to current ways of building in order to sort of cheat or make an informed decision based on what people have done before you. 
Where on the land you put your building is almost as important as how you build. Microclimates can play a big role in this selection. Also, know your options for materials and techniques when it comes to the anatomy of your building. It will also help you make decisions that will affect the comfort of the building significantly. And lastly, design for comfort. Know the difference between needs and wants, especially when you're working on a tight budget. Make sure that you get the needs out of the way first so that you can start living in the structure and saving on rent, taking back your freedom, and then start to work in all of the desired traits from there as your budget and your time frame allows. Design for the functions that you want to facilitate in your life. You can literally design a house that helps you become a better person by facilitating functions of self-improvement, community building, and reconnection to the earth. So I really hope that you got some value out of this short lecture today. And if you have any questions, or if you want to answer some of those questions that I had in the presentation earlier, I would love to hear from you. And if you're looking to get involved more and get your hands dirty in some of these techniques, you can find our full course schedule at AbundantEdge.com under the Education tab. I really hope to hear from you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.